Well, finally got around to playing it. Public thanks to my friend uh, who loaned me his Xbox so that I could actually play this game and didn't have to go and pur purchase a new one just for this rumination. I was actually originally going to say no to this rumination request because I generally don't buy systems for one game. Uh, but in this exception, I was able to make an exception, so woo! Um, my only complaint is the load times. Oh my god, was that just me? Like, was I the only one who had that problem? <laughs> it says, okay, and then I will destroy this! Loading. Oh my gosh, we have to go do this! Loading. Like, it's not, I'm exaggerating. I'm exaggerating, but there were certain cutscenes where I was kind of like, <gasps> oh, loading screen. <laughs> you know, it completely pulled me out of the moment. Uh, no, nowhere near as bad as, say, Sonic 06, but holy crap. This game, of course, is most infamous for being made by Mistwalker, uh, the you know, Hironobu Sakaguchi group as part of the trilogy that was being made at the time. Now, that may sound like a weird thing, because you're probably looking at me like, that's not a trilogy. But if you pay attention, there were contracts written, and Sakaguchi and the rest of the developing team basically said, there are three games we want to make. They made all three of them, so props them on that. Blue Dragon, Lost Odyssey, and Last Story. I have actually had the fortune of playing two of these now, Never actually gotten around to Blue Dragon, because Xbox issue. Now, what's funny about this one, though, is this is when they started to have development problems, and they had to go to the Microsoft Studios, who, for reasons I've never fully been able to understand, basically decided to throw a decent amount of weight and money behind the production of this game. They put Feel Plus at their disposal, and Feel Plus was involved with the production as well. If you've never heard of them, that's not surprising, because they basically worked on nothing. Uh, Feel Plus then self-destructed very shortly after this, uh, relatively speaking. However, you might recognize some of the other games that the developers who worked at Feel Plus have worked on, including, most uh, notably and obviously, uh, Leg Leg Legend of the Dragoon. Also, Shadow Hearts, another one I get asked about a lot. Now... One of the things that Sakaguchi himself and several of the other writers involved said when they went into this game is they wanted to do a story that was all about telling a tale that brought out feeling in the players. Now that sounds like a weird goal to start with, but after having played this game all the way through, I kind of see where he's going with on that. Um, the idea being, well, I don't want to get too much ahead of myself, but let's just say that certain aspects of the narrative really work well, and then some don't. I chose this background for a reason. We'll get there. Let's talk about the gameplay really quick. Probably my favorite thing about the gameplay, bar none, is the variance in gameplay... Uh, play? <laughs> the integration, in other words, of story and gameplay, because Immortals and Mortals actually function differently in gameplay. The most notable and obvious one being the skill system, but I also like the fact that Immortals, as long as you just hold on for a little bit, will get right back up at the end of combat. It makes for an interesting variance in the design, because it no longer becomes about you have to heal everyone or you have to have a phoenix down ready. It's not a phoenix down in this game, but you know what I mean. But you do have to take care of some of your party members, and there's also the uh, the guard mechanic. You know, I'm literally going to prevent you from taking damage because you're in the back row. That was cool, too. It especially was necessary late game when... Oh my god, I can't remember how to pronounce his name. The king, the prince, uh, was like, you know, I, I, I've joined your party and I'm crap. You know, crap level. I also find it interesting. I literally, just a few days ago, had a discussion on my stream about methods of approach to player power output levels and the concept of horizontal power and vertical power and how those interact with each other. 
What I find interesting about this game is that almost everything is really on the horizontal level because it's all about those skills. The skills you learn from leveling up, but also the skills you learn from linking with a mortal, uh, to an immortal, and also the skills you get from accessories. Also, it's kind of a nice touch and it makes a degree of sense in a weird way that immortals will learn a skill permanently from accessories, whereas mortals, they only get it while they've got it on. Um, I'll get more into my theory why that isn't just a second. <clears throat> Other than obviously varying it up. There's a few other things. You can tell that this game uh, was designed by people who worked on some of the NES and SNES classics as well as the early PS1 stuff. It's, it's all over the place. Um, probably one of my favorite aspects of that is this one NPC who's like, Oh, thank you for getting rid of all this clutter in my room. I really appreciate it as I'm looting their house. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, sure. The combat itself reminds me more of Dragon Quest than anything else. Obviously different visuals, but the actual approach to the combat, you know, if it was just and then the enemy windows and yeah, instead of the, the actual animation that we see in the game, I could see this being a Dragon Quest game. That's not a complaint, by the way. It's just an interesting approach to the style of it. Um, what else? Um, the New Game Plus in this game is bizarre. I actually had an option to start the game New Game Plus because obviously I had a complete save long. Oh yeah, sure, I'll do that. And it turns out it basically just shoves your levels to 50 but doesn't retain skills. And I'm like, okay. And it didn't do anything for the mortal characters. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> I guess this technically qualifies as New Game Plus. You know, it's not super useful or helpful, but whatever. But again, so much of my... Uh, by the time I finished the game... Almost everything I was doing was relying on the skills, not the stats, and so, you know, it felt like kind of unnecessary. Pardon me a moment. So, let, let's talk about the story. I don't have a lot to say about most of the characters. I'm going to open with that, because frankly, most of the characters are not what I would call particularly memorable. Uh, there are a few that, that jut out. For, for the most part, I just see characters, and I'm like, yeah, okay. It's not that I dislike them. It's not even that they're boring it's just that I have nothing to say about them. What do I say about Sid? Or said? They kind of vary how they say it throughout the game. What do I have to say about him? I mean, I could talk about the man who is outliving his mother, but, or, and is going to, what I'm saying, outli I'm saying that wrong, who is going to die before his mother, who is older than his mother, older, right? You know, but I, I don't have anything else to add to that. Uh, I could talk about the kids. They're cute. I like their interactions with Jansen. I actually have several things to say about Jansen. <laughs> I'm sure that surprises you. Um, Kine? I mean, he's basically just another... I don't mean this as an insult, but he, he's a JRPG protagonist. He's not a Dragon Quest-style protagonist. That's a, that's a different category. He's the kind of guy who's like, I am serious, and I am noble, and I have learned to... And, and I care about certain people. He reminds me of Squall in FF8. And again, I don't mean that as an insult. Unlike some people, I actually know that Squall does have dimensions to him and is actually an interesting character. It's just there were some translation issues in the English version and he wasn't as well presented as he could have been in FF8 proper. That being said, though, that's, that's what it reminds me of. He's the guy who's super serious about his job and who comes across as a little bit robot-like, which makes sense since he's an immortal and the whole emotion thing. But I suppose I should get into that. Um, oh yeah, and I have nothing to say about Seth, although Seth has, was an interesting, well, that's not true, I have a couple things to say about Seth, but let, let's move on, let's talk about the immortality thing. The immortality thing is weird. 
And if I'm being honest, it's probably, as weird as this may sound, it's the part about the game that bothers me most, because it is the least explained thing. Now, I know what you're all rushing to your comment section to say. Oh, that's not true. They explain it perfectly. They are, their consciousness is connected to the second world, the other world, and therefore, and in that world, time flows differently. Therefore, for them, well, I mean, I'm already struggling with this because it's breaking down. The logic's already breaking down. If their consciousness is connected back there, why do they perceive time the same rate that everyone else does here? Whereas their essence or life or whatever is still being elongated out there. Further question. If time is the specific source of their immortality, basically them not aging, which makes degree of sense, why do they also have the durability? It's not quite invincibility, but it's leaning in that direction. There are several uh, story and lore cutscenes and tidbits, especially in the, uh, the Thousand Years of Dreams bit, which kind of emphasize that these people are mega durable. That they can literally take hits that an entire army couldn't do to them. I mean, it's even a plot point at the beginning of the game. That's why <laughs> Lord Eyebrows was trying to send you after the Grand Staff. It's like, okay, this is... You are the person who can endure whatever the hell happened there, right? I mean, he's not the only one to send him, but you get my point. Why the durability? Now, I could come up with my own explanation for this, but the game doesn't really feel inclined to explain certain aspects of its own setting. And that's kind of what bugs me about it. <sighs> The other thing about this is that you, can, an immortal has more than enough cap capacity to breed with a mortal person. They are completely biological, biologically compatible, and any resulting children are completely mortal. Which, again, kind of feels like it's something that isn't quite defined. And it just kind of pushes this whole thing into the don't question it territory. That's the impression I kept getting. It almost felt like the excuse of the other world was basically just there to have an explanation. Don't think about it. They're immortal moving on. Like, that, that was the whole point, right? I mean, the whole... <sighs> I'll get to that in a second. Now, that being said, I do have my own explanation, which kind of flies in the face of the game. So this is pure headcanon, but I just wanted to share it with you guys, and I was curious what you guys think. To me, it makes more sense that these people are more or less literally partial energy beings that where they're from is relatively equivalent to the same standards of existence that they have in the mortal plane. It's just energy-based rather than matter-based because of the fact that they, when they transfer through the mirror, through the portal, or however the hell they get to the, to the first world, you know, to the world of the game, something happens in the process and their energy is converted to matter, but it still retains its energy properties. That energy itself suffusing it at every level. This would explain how they are so durable and why it is that they don't age, even though they effectively do. I believe the general math is that in 70 millennia they might actually die of old age, something along those lines, although even that's an estimate. That doesn't quite explain how the children thing works then. Unless we're to presume that the biological matter does not carry with it any of the energy properties, which goes against what I just said, so that's the best I got. <laughs> what do you want from me, guys? We do know that spirit magic is a thing in this setting, so I might be part of it. I don't know. Uh, before we get to other things, let's talk about some of the characters. Normally, I like to talk about... Anybody who's watched my rumination for a long time, you know I like to talk about the villains last. Usually because I have the most to say about them. They're the most interesting, or the most engaging, or there's, there's, there's just something there that makes it worth discussing for me. 
That's the whole point of a rumination. This isn't really a detailed dissection of something, more of a discussion and analysis of concepts, themes, and ideas. I'm not going to sit here and tell you, so then... Uh, they went to, to the Grand Staff, and then there was an army up there, and the army was like, whoa, and I'm not going to tell you about, okay, and, and clearly this was indicative of this political movement at the time. No, no, it's all self-apparent. I don't need to tell you that. The game told you that. Um, I don't need to tell you that the pearl that was being given to Jansen probably wasn't supposed to be used on the guard, you know, because of the circumstances of by which Jansen was hired by Lord Eyebrows. So, you know, I, I don't need to tell you any of this. The game already tells you all this stuff. So there's going to be a lot of specific details I skip over. But I really do want to talk about the villain briefly, because he's one of the least interesting villains I've seen in a long time. Let me, let me explain what I mean by this real quick. <sighs> Gungora is someone, Lord Eyebrows, some, for some reason that's stuck in my mind better than Gungora did. Lord Eyebrows, uh, he strikes me as the kind of person who always wanted to be great, but wasn't. Now, we could list off his accomplishments. I've heard several people uh, in discussion forums discussing him as if he is a genius and a manipulator and blah, blah, blah. But all I see when I see Gondora, Gongora, excuse me, is a pathetic man who, by circumstance, was given the opportunity for greatness. I see someone who, back in his home planet, is a nobody. But someone with a what would usually be referred to as a dark heart, a poisoned heart, the kind of mentality that wants something like godhood. This is a man who was teleported to a world of ants, and all of a sudden he realizes, I can rule over all these pathetic ants because I'll never amount to anything back home. But these ants, oh, I'm so much bigger than these ants, and I'm so much stronger, and I'm so much smarter than the ants, and I can do, I can make all these ants bow in worship of me. You, you see where I'm going with this? I, uh, I love the idea that the one thing he fears the most is actually what ends up happening to him. He ends up going back home, where all of his power means nothing, and... Well, given the little command he gets in the middle of the game, I don't think they're going to be very happy with him. That also brings up another interesting point to me, though. And that's that Gungora basically made his own enemies. Now, I know that's a common thing. Uh, you know, we heroes create our own villains kind of a thing. And it kind of tends to be the other way as well. The villains create their own heroes. They create the heroes that are going to go against them. It's a very common literary trope. But it's almost funny to me in this case because it feels so much like a, for lack of a better term, lack of self-esteem. Oh, God, no. I mean, I could just go rule the world, but there's those other immortals, and oh God, i got to do something about them. But I can't kill them. And, like, encasing them in, like, a, a stone casket and then pouring concrete into it, putting the bottom of the ocean, that's just impossible. So I know I'm going to be as ludicrously evil as I possibly can to break their spirits and, and break their minds and destroy their memories. And that way they won't be a threat to me. Oh, and I'm going to go out of my way to basically wreck their lives at every step of turn and step of the way, because screw them. I mean, what? It's also interesting to note that Gungora keeps insisting that the mirror is the only way back. I've never believed that for a second. I mean, someone had to build that thing to the in the first place, right? And it's worth noting that about a thousand years ago, or 
uh, I forget how long. They, they say something about the time variance, but you know, ha, you know, however many minutes ago it's been uh, in the other world, they were able to send people here. Like you can't tell me they're not going to manage that again in a few millennia or whatever, right? Also, I had someone posit the idea that the immortals here literally left their bodies back in the first world, and that there's just kind of, you know, they're just kind of sleeping in stasis up there for however many days or years or whatever it's been at this point. Anyways. Before I move on to continue that topic, I want to bring up Ming and Seth very briefly. Um, Ming is someone who I liked because Ming is someone who, if not for certain aspects of how she's presented, would be a completely bog-standard female JRPG character. And that's it works in this case, and it doesn't bother me as much as it otherwise would because that's a mask. I mean, I should say it is my opinion that that's a mask. This is a woman who has been around for a millennia and for once actually acts like it. This is someone who is incredibly perceptive, very politically affluent, very well knowledgeable about, knowledgeable about her, herself, her people, and her kingdom, and pretty much is constantly ahead of everyone on everything. The only things that prevent her from basically winning in any given situation that she faces, like with General Idiot McBoy stops... Boys tobs. I don't know what that means. <laughs> is the fact that she has deliberately ensured that she is not a dictator, that she is actively not pursuing what Gungora wants. If it, if she had, if she was just the absolute ruler, she would just crush him like a bug and move on. Instead, he crushes himself, and well, let's just say he's rather amusing. It is, in my opinion, telling that Ming never deals with the general because he was never a threat to her. Not really. So. She carries herself as someone who is legitimately wise and capable and cognizant of, of the world around her and in a way that I can believe. But in addition to that, she also wears multiple different masks against her. You know, there's the obvious mask, the queen mask. Then there's the uh, mask. Um, now, it's worth noting that might not be a mask. Given the way she acts in certain scenes, it feels like it was intended to be played straight. To me, it feels better if that is a mask. If whatever she's actually feeling underneath is more of a gray morass of shifting ideas and emotions, especially since she's an immortal, and we know immortals don't really handle emotions better than, as well as other people, but more to the point because who and what she is at her core is literally a shifting concept. I do like the idea that she ends up falling for Jansen. I'm not much of a shipper. But it makes sense to me that she would end up falling for someone who, for all of his many flaws, is actually someone who is very, very sincere and very sure of himself. Something that she is not. Now, before I talk about Jansen, I do want to bring up Seth really quick. Seth is interesting to me because... Between Seth and Kaim, we basically have the standard protagonist duo right there. We've got the introvert, and we've got the extrovert. And I know that's a really basic way to bear it down, but if you think about it, I'm sure you can think about many characters across many RPGs and JRPGs that fit those two categories as, as part of the main characterization. Um, right off the top of my head, FF6, Terra's the introvert, Locke's the extrovert. Now, there's other examples, but you get my point, right? Seth also, to me, feels a little bit more like someone who is a mover and a shaker. 
Kain, even when he finally starts getting his memory back and starts caring about events, is mostly going along with the flow. Seth feels more like someone who is actively pushing against the flow, is directing the series of events. I actually firmly believe that if not for Seth and Ming in particular, and a little bit Jensen, but those two, that the, the game wouldn't have gone as well as it did that they would never have pushed as far or as hard in order to stop Ngora or any of his situation or, or the, the war or any of that crap. And of course, she is the one to sacrifice herself in the end. Although it's kind of a weird type of sacrifice, isn't it? <laughs> if you think about it. Because as the game posits, what's happening now is, you know, milliseconds are going by for her as time is going by here in, in the first world. So she will continue to live an otherwise ordinary life and probably have a lot of fun proceeding over the trial of Gungora. Assuming they care, of course. They might be a Kryptonian, we're a horrible and corrupt kind of a thing. I don't know. Anyways, but, you know, she, she's not dead dead. She has just sacrificed her ability to live in the, her life in the world that she has cared about. There's one other point about that as well, but I'll get to that in a second. <clears throat> because I want to talk about Jansen. I really want to talk about Jansen because he's awesome. I don't think it's much of a surprise to say that I liked Jansen. I didn't think I was going to at first. At first I'm like, okay. And then there was the scene where he's got two, one girl in each hand, or one arm, and then the third one just kind of tagging along. I'm just like, oh, God, really? Do we really need another chivalrous pervert? But that was really the only scene where he came across as particularly bad in that regard. And... It took me a while, a long while, to really put a finger on what I was liking about Jansen as a character. Because there wasn't anything super unique about it. I even looked up the voice actor. I, wanted, I, I got his name jotted down here. Michael McGaharm? Michael McGaharm? Michael, Michael McGara. <laughs> Whatever. If you look it up, you won't find Jack. He has done n almost nothing. He's had like eight credits to his name ever. The most recent one was 2007, Lost Odyssey. Hasn't done anything in 11 years. So, yeah. Um, but his voice direction is weirdly brilliant, which is especially weird since, if I'm being honest, a lot of the other English voice direction and acting was just not that great. But him, he was great. But it wasn't just the voice acting. Early on, I started uh, jotting down some, some uh, quotes he said that I, that I liked. I had to stop after a certain point. Um... I especially, uh, one that really comes out at me is, Oh, come on, death lives. Are you listening to yourself? And another one, this isn't a quote, but it's when the arrow is like following him. It's like, okay, present a moving target. Presenting moving target, they can't hit you. Right? Both great stuff. But I finally realized, like I said, like towards the latter end of the game, why it is I was liking Jansen so much. It's because he's an O'Brien now, for those of you who don't watch my Loriums, or watch, read my Loriums, he is a very down-to-earth, relatable character. He is a, he's not quite a viewpoint character so much as the character that we can comprehend easier and better than the other characters. I mean, yeah, he's a fairly powerful and competent mage, but other than that, I imagine most people could look at Jansen and say, yeah, yeah, it's probably something I could be feeling in that moment. You don't really associate with Seth. <laughs> you don't really associate with Kaim and the, and the Stoicism. No, you associate with Jansen and his, oh, okay, um, all right, we're, we're going to die. There's an army and we're going to die. Should we surrender? Are we surrendering? I, I'm good with the queen, so maybe we can, you know. <laughs> you, you associate with that guy. He's the ordinary guy. 
And he also serves as a wonderful grounding element for the rest of the party, something that none of the other characters manage. He also has a great deal of charisma to him and a modicum of genuine intellect, in addition to the fact that he knows how to think on his feet very, very well. Uh, he presents this several times. My two favorite examples of this is when he and Seth do their uh, good cop, bad cop thing. And the escape from the prison, which is just great. The way he's talking, like, hey, dude, yeah, you forgot about your promotion, didn't you? Um, so you, you, you hit your head, okay? But we're going to head over here. And the best part is, as you're going through, that I actually uh, screwed up on the escape once. And I go back, and the guard's like, dude, I'm sorry. Are you back here? Let me let you out again, because he's still... It's all good stuff. But Jansen also serves another very important aspect of the story. And that's what I want to build to right here. This is the part I want to talk about most of the story. Because I want to talk about a thousand years of dreams. One of the things I strive to do when I analyze a work of fiction is I try to figure out what theme or themes are running current through it. And as I'm going through this game, I was struggling. It's not really about environmentalism. It's not really about the curse of immortality. It's not really about ideas of connections between people. You know, and I'm just sitting here like, hmm. And one of the things I think I love about this game, I mean, I, I will admit this isn't exactly my favorite game ever, and I have no particular plans to replay it, even if I had time to. But the thing I love about it is its approach to its theme, my opinion, of course, is the idea of the little stories the ideas and concepts and everyday things that each make up a little story in itself. It's, imagine, if you will, a massive library that is filled with short stories. Every single one of those short stories is a year in someone's life. Telling about what they've been through, how things have changed for them, how their perspective has changed, new people they've met, old people they've had to let go. Uh, talking about how they've changed and varied or stayed the same. Talking about countries, how those alter, talking about the war, the incidents. That's what this game feels like. And what really helped put the finger on that is the thousand years of dreams. Because that whole thing is basically, I mean, yes, obviously it's there for the writing purposes, but its deliberate inclusion feels like trying to draw your attention to basically the opposite of existentialism, which is something we'll be discussing later this month with Nier and Nier Automata. The idea that it's not, it's not so much about whether or not you should exist, so much as the fact that that question isn't even being brought into the equation. That instead what matters is each of these little stories and the ways they interact with each other. Once I saw that perspective, a lot of the game made a lot more sense. All of the dynamics between so many of the characters, the, the finding of the grandchildren, um, the, the quest for, for Lyram, and, and the, the vague sense that Lyram was helping them as they go through, um, the, the, ma the magical revolution, and the idea that magic is being used as what is effectively nuclear power, you know, the idea of an electrical technological revolution being fueled by magic, the emotive concepts... And that brings me to my final point. Because one of the things I find interesting about this game is that many of its uh, crises, many of the difficulties, the, the dilemmas, are left unresolved by the end of the game. We stopped Gungora, and that's kind of it, really. 
Now, obviously, with Ming in place and our immortality intact, funnily enough, we don't get rid of our immortality by the end of the game. That's also an interesting twist. Um, but with that intact, we'll be able to work with... Uh, I wanted to say Uhura. <laughs> with, with her kingdom and with the Kents uh, being able to try and work something out with the other... The four nations are still not quite fully resolved, is what I'm trying to get to. There's obviously going to be peace between the two, but as for the others... There's also going to be a lot of uh, bias and prejudice that still has to be overcome. You remember the letter chain uh, that involved Alex and Min, I want to say? I can't remember her name. And her, how much people just absolutely despised and hated her within her village. You remember that one? There's still a lot of baggage in the world. And that's just at the large scale. Remember that the entire reason the entire game ever started was because five immortals were sent over here from World 2 in order to investigate what was causing this continuous poison, caustic, corrosion, death over there. And we find out, we find the answer. It's the human emotion that is infecting it between the magical connection between the worlds. What's going to happen from that in the future? Don't tell me that connection's severed because there's still immortals here who, by the game's own logic, ignoring my own headcanon, are only immortal because of their connection to the second world, which is maintained. So, um... That's still an issue. But that's not the point. Or at least, I'd like to think that's not the point. They don't resolve the poison issue. They don't resolve what's happening to Kingora. They don't even resolve what's happening with Kaim and Sarah, for God's sakes. I have nothing to say about Sarah. She's she's practically a non-character. But, you know, okay, you find your one true love and they happen to be mortal as well. That's kind of cool. What about your kids? Or their kids? Right? <laughs> there are other issues at stake here. Now, one of the other interesting things is the game kind of goes out of its way. I noticed a few other people noticed this as well in a Reddit thread I was reading. Uh, the game goes out of its way to not really state whether or not an afterlife exists in this setting. It does have some implications, and several play, uh, of the characters within give their opinions one way or the other, but it never states it definitively. But based on the way some of the events proceed throughout, throughout it, and the obvious magical inclination, it wouldn't surprise me if there was some kind of afterlife after things happen. What I have to ask is, what do you think happens specifically to one of the immortals when they die? Because they can, as, as we've already discussed. And, I mean, Gungora, when he goes back, he might end up dying as well, given everything that he's done. This is a fun game. My final thought is actually a gameplay thought, and I'm saving this for the very end because it's the most obvious thing to say. But it's something that I feel needs to be said because it's actually an interesting concept to me. This is a PlayStation 2 game smashed together with a SNES game. And I don't just mean, like, obviously we've got the developers of, you know, of, of older games, of, you know, PS1 games and SNES era games, uh, working on a Xbox game. That's not what I mean. What I mean by that is the very philosophy and concepts of many of the, at the time, more modern game design were meshed with the game design options and concepts of the older days. Um, 
the leveling curve is actually very smooth and very well designed overall, brilliantly in, in several ways. Um, the approach to the skills, the idea behind the you decide all of your team's combat orders before you actually do it, but then the combat itself feels kind of ARPG-E, even though it actually isn't. Um, the approach to the way they do difficulty, especially on some of the gimmick bosses as they go throughout the game. And of course, the approach of the story. One of the things that really strikes me about the story, and this is endemic of many things, in fact, I have a lorium for this I call SNES RPG, is that in many cases we have a situation where not all information is given, it is merely inferred. And, be, and through this inference, we can then presume more information. But we do have to presume that additional information. And yet, visually, a lot of information is being dropped on us thanks to the PS2 style. It's really PS3, but you know what I mean, right? The PS2 era graphics approach. More of an FF10 approach to cutscenes than an FF5 approach to cutscenes, to put it into such simple terms. They can literally show more. And I feel like the game was better both in terms of story and in gameplay for this unique merger. Certainly other games in modern era, even, even after this one came out, have attempted to basically replicate the retro style. But I don't think I've seen any that have attempted to mash what the retro and the other retro style in such a unique way as this one. And that's the final thought I wanted to give. This is a very unique game. I thank you for giving me the chance to look through it. I hope you've enjoyed. I'll see you next time.